power on. There's been a lot of buzz about this fake news. You were the subject of a fake news story. Oh yeah, what they say? I was running for president. No, no, no I voted. No, what they say? You switched your support. I switched. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. What do you make of all of fake news? Did it affect? If you don't read the newspaper, you're uninformed. If you do read it, you're misinformed. Hmm. So what do you do? That's a great question. What is the long-term effect of too much information? One of the effects is the need to be first, not even to be true anymore. So what a responsibility you all have to, be, to tell the truth, not just to be first, but to tell the truth. We live in a society now where it's just first. Who cares? Get it out there. We don't care who it hurts. We don't care who we destroy. We don't care if it's true. Just say it. Sell it. Anything you practice, you'll get good at Include, including BS. You Hold told on. me last <laughs> Okay. But you heard me? Does I that make sense? I Legendary films and TV shows. Or just pure shit. The legendary host, Dr. Brian Sovereign. Sovereign at the movies. record something very different than what I'm recording right now. Uh, and this is a rare occasion where, and I don't even want to, I don't even need to take time to chew on this. Uh, there's, there's a classic, uh, video from someone who most people probably wouldn't think I'd ever quote, but, uh, from Bishop Fulton Sheen. And we're talking about a video from like 60, you know, 70 years ago. Um, where he talks about how to digest information and he's saying that you need to chew on it. You know, you should take your time with it, right? Digest it, integrate it, think about it from multiple angles, perhaps all great advice to give, uh, quite frankly. And again, I, I say this to point out that normally I don't just watch something and then instantly hop behind my microphone in the BDSM studio three and do a review of it and start talking about it. But this is a case where it was something so asinine that well, what else was I supposed to do? <laughs> and I'll admit, I actually walk away from it kind of, uh, 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 I don't want to say frightened. Nothing really scares me, but disturbed. Because A, I'll say this right out front, it's very poorly done, very poorly presented. I mean, it might have like slick production to it, but it's very, very poorly presented. Um, it has almost no, like, like it doesn't even make an attempt to present any serious evidence or what any person would consider to be evidence. And B, the way that the people that are interviewed, and this is a documentary, or, you know, what these people say that they're interviewing is, is so mind numbingly mind numbing is kind of stupidity, whatever. I'm going to run with it. So mind numbingly stupid um, and stupid to the point that it hurts people. And in fact, quite literally people have died because of this way of thinking. Yeah. I watched this and I was really disturbed. So it's a documentary. It's new. It's fresh. Came out in 2021 this year. I don't recall exactly how I came across it. I must've been reading something. And then this was met. Oh, I no, actually 
I think I do know how I came across this because I think it actually kind of gets at the heart of how this somehow this got produced and made and was given a budget and was shown at the Sundance film festival this year in 2021, because otherwise I can't fucking explain this horse shit. Anyway, the documentary is called a glitch in the matrix. Now it crossed my bow because um, I think I was reading up on the latest news of, you know, what's happening with uh, the matrix Four coming out in December of this year of 2021. Very excited for that, by the way, big matrix fan. You know, you don't need to <laughs> long time listeners of sovereign tech. You know, the deal. I, I mean, there's like, I love everything. Matrix love the whole trilogy, love the animatrix, which I've also come to understand recently. A lot of people just don't fucking understand, which, okay. I'm sorry. You're a moron, but some of us have taste and an intellect like the Wachowskis do. I'm sorry. I, I think I'm saying moron too much and I want to be. I don't want to do that. That's not the kind of person I want to be. What I mean is I don't want to be the kind of person that just keeps repeating the same word. So I'll say nincompoop. Okay. So just because everybody else is a nincompoop, whatever. <laughs> so this documentary is called a glitch in the matrix. Um, I mean, I'll say this right out front. Th this is, I, I think this is some um, speaking of slick. I think this is some slick marketing. I think this got made as a way of like priming people for the matrix four. And it's basically marketing. I mean, cause this could not have cost that much to do. I mean, there's some, there's some like interesting effects and decisions made. Like, again, it is, it's a documentary. This is not like a, a you know, a fictional movie by any stretch, even though it's claiming that the entire universe is a fiction, but okay. Um, yeah, if, if you haven't gathered yet, sorry. The documentary is about simulation theory, okay? Which, frankly, I don't I don't even think the Matrix is really about the brain and the vat, but we'll get into that. But there's like this, this clever way where the people they're interviewing who believe in simulation theory and who are trying to purport it, who, not that anybody has to have credentials, but they, I mean, they do talk to Nick Bostrom, okay, you know? I mean, he's kind of the, one of the major proponents of it. They play a lot of clips from Elon Musk. We'll talk about the problems with that as well. But, you know, the people that they spend most of the time talking to, um, I'm trying to understand for, under what reasons other than one guy went to Harvard, like, why should, why should their opinion like mean anything as far as like, like what exactly is their educational background as to where, you know, somehow they, they, they are worth being in a documentary, but they show the, I mean, they make it like cartoonish anyway, because they, uh, they like overlay a CGI avatar over the people that they're doing video calls with, which like, I get it. Okay. That's trying to, you know, make it seem that, wow, you know, everything's just a, it's, we're all just living in Minecraft, you know, like that's kind of the concept that gets laid out, uh, in this, but you know, after seeing this and seeing some of like the recent, uh, like Netflix documentaries and other ones. Um, and I know I'm pretty sure this is on Netflix. I, I torrented it. So <laughs> jokes on <laughs> the idiots that fucking made this. Um, and actually this was made by Rodney Asher, who, um, who also made, what was the documentary about, uh, about the shining, uh, room two thirty seven a few years ago, <sighs> whatever. Um, <laughs> But whatever, by doing these like CGI overlays and making the world as they experience it, you know, these people who are telling their stories look like uh, really it looks like the grid from Tron. I mean, they, they clearly did that on purpose, um, you know, and that's to allude to the idea that we're living in a computer, which is just like what Tron's all about, which I just like the Matrix. I mean, I'm absolutely obsessed with all things Tron, even Tron Uprising, uh, Tron 2.0. I mean, you know, all of it. Y you know me when I'm into shit. I'm into all of it. Like, and, and, and I, you know, I understand what's under every stone. So I know I'm kind of all over the place here, but this is, this was such a clusterfuck. Now, before anybody says to me, because I'm sure I have listeners who think simulation theory is a thing, who think it's real, who think that they're living in a giant computer or however they want to describe it. Uh, before you say to me 
that, well, Brian, you know, instead of like bitching and moaning about simulation theory and the slap nuts that I'm sorry, and the people that believe it, um, why don't you, you know, make a rebuttal? Why don't you go make a documentary that speaks out against simulation theory? Well, to that person, I say two things. One, I already have. In fact, I did it in 15 minutes. And I think, and I've certainly heard from others that a pretty round, you know, soundly thrashed and roundly thrashed the notion. It's audio because that's what I do for podcasts, but I think audio can be a fine documentary. I mean, there was nothing about this other than having some visual flair that required video for what they, you know, were talking about in this, because in this case, especially it was just all, you know, opinion and hearsay. So the second thing I'll say to you is that don't worry because I'm going to include it at the end of this episode of what I am recording right now, just so that I can get the point out there. And it's an episode. I mean, it's not like anything new. Uh, I actually did it boy, two, three years ago, but it's an episode of my user podcast called the light of knowledge that is all about answering ultimately, you know, if we want to stick with the matrix, what Morpheus asks, what is real or, you know, or the classic, you know, Pontius Pilate, what is truth? Well, this episode gets into that. So that's at the end. We'll get to that at the end and I'll let it close out the show. So this is a very different uh, sovereign at the movies because we're dealing with a documentary, not, you know, a, a, a work of a work of fiction. So again, this movie is all about exploring the lives and thoughts of people who buy into this whole thing, you know, into simulation theory again, which is all base at the base level. And I mean, they get into something when they talk to Nick Bostrom, he kind of breaks it down a little bit uh, to, you know, okay, well, there's different like ways of thinking about the simulation theory and whatever, but really any way you look at them, just no. So the movie more or less opens up. I mean, they have like this one guy that they're interviewing again. It's just like an avatar of like a lion, whatever. Yeah, all right. Oh, huh. I wanted to say this earlier. Let me get this in now. Wow. Have we, and I, and I say that as the collective, we, you know, as in humanity seems to have lost the ability to make compelling well thought out, well planned, uh, evidence based documentaries. Like we're never going to get another cosmos. And and I don't I don't mean like the the, the Neil deGrasse Tyson shit. I mean just like we're we're just never going to get any another cosmos. We're never going to get another the day the universe changed. Um, we're never going to get uh, fuck. What was what was that big one from Britain? Uh, civilization or something like it was any, anyway, I, I don't exactly recall it at the moment, but we're just, we're, we're never, how about the, the stuff Milton Friedman did, right? Like we're, ne we're never going to get that, that kind of great documentary. That's like just trying to lay it out. That's gone. Like everything is so stupidly stylized now, uh, to where it, it's, you know, all flash, no substance. Or I guess more of the saying would be all style, no substance. But this movie has a real, or this documentary, has a real obsession with Philip K. Dick, uh, which, hey, so do I. <laughs> I don't think there's any any science fiction fan, or should I say any fan that that's actually into science fiction and not whatever Siffy puts out there now or whatever Disney thinks you should think is science fiction uh, I mean, I don't know if they've made great science fiction since maybe the black hole might've been the last time they tried. Oh, but Brian, what, what makes science fiction is a matter of opinion. No, you're wrong. This is the part. This is the other part that I, and I bring this up all the time that people constantly forget. Art is subjective to a point. To a point art is subjective. Okay. There are objective metrics that are possible to measure art with. Hey, I love dead poet society too, but the fact is, okay. <laughs> like Jay Evans Pritchard was wrong. All right. But there are objective metrics. Science fiction was about 
the possible, the possible future, the possible present, the possible past even, but it was ultimately an intellectual exercise. And I won't apologize for the statement that just about everything Disney, almost maybe some star Wars in there is like, at least has food for thought, but these things are not, you know, what Disney produces today, even what Warner brothers or whoever, other than maybe the matrix Four or whoever puts out there, these are not intellectual exercises at all. Like your intellect is not running in any way. Maybe your endorphins are, but not your intellect. So fuck off. It's not science fiction. So if you're into intellectual exercises that deal in the realms of the possible and the strange, you are probably also like me, a big fan of Philip K. Dick. Now they use him all between him and Elon Musk. They are used as the authority figures for the validation and the historicity of this concept of simulation theory. And speaking of the history, I mean, they do get into some of the history around it saying, well, this actually existed before we even knew what computers were. Um, it did exist before Nick Bostrom postulated it. It existed before, uh, you know, Descartes, you know, thought about the, the demon thing, you know, before, um, you know, it goes like possibly goes all the way back to Plato, you know, Plato's cave. Maybe it even goes back further than that. So, you know, they, they do at least admit to that. But with Philip K. Dick and Elon Musk being the authorities of this, minus Nick Bostrom, uh, which, by the way, really listen to what Nick Bostrom is saying, because he basically admits that, like, even by his criteria, which is who most people point at, by his criteria, simulation theory, the idea that we live in a simulation, is one possibility out of three. Here's the rub. It's one possibility out of three. <laughs> okay. So, so actually, and, and which is ironic because then they use Elon Musk's statement. It's like, oh, well, the chance that we are, that we're like the, the, uh, the base civilization that created the simulation is like billions to one. But then the possibility that we're even in a simulation is only one out of three. So it's actually, so, you know, Musk is running off of statistical significance, but the very concept itself, according to kind of the leading figure behind it right now, statistically or significantly statistically, we can't, we're not in the simulation. <laughs> so <laughs> I, these guys, right. That's the old saying, you know, there's lies, damn lies and statistics, right? I think I want to change that. There's lies, damn lies and Elon Musk. That's what there is. I want to talk about Philip K. Dick, but let me get in the Musk stuff because this is, this is one of the big parts that disturbed me. Like the people that they interview, these schlubs, I mean, uh, these people that look, I know, I know you're saying stallion. Will you stop, you know, uh, uh, being derogatory. That's negating your arguments. No, <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. When someone's being a fucking idiot, you got to tell them that they're being an idiot. One of the two biggest problems in this world is the two biggest problems. Here's the two biggest problems. There's a lack of lack of touch and a lack of telling each other how we really feel. When someone's a fucking moron, you fucking tell them. And if you don't, they just go around, keep being, a, just keep being an adult. You are not to quote an old hero of mine who's far smarter than, than most, uh, uh, most of the people that were, or definitely everybody that was in this, even though I'm sure he would, I actually, I know for a fact because he was a friend of mine and he wouldn't have said that he was smarter than Philip K. Dick. Cause he, he liked, he, I was going to say he liked Dick. <laughs> he liked Philip K. Dick. <laughs> Harlan Ellison, you are not entitled to your opinion. You are entitled to your informed opinion. And these opinions are not informed and certainly true from Elon Musk. But what bothered me, was that is how many of these people admitted, well, you know, Elon Musk started to talk about it and it got me thinking, I'm like, holy fuck, the cult around this guy. It's a fucking cult around Elon Musk.
you know, I, I, I never thought that I'd find something that I found more annoying than, than like the cult of Christ. Well, I think the cult of Musk, this guy, uh, wow. <laughs> I just, I, I can't believe how, how people just, just like listen to him. And, and just take it as, oh, well, he must have really thought about that. What are, you, are you kidding me? He's fucking, he's with Grimes. <laughs> this is a gal that like replaces lenses in her eyeballs. Okay. But th this cult of Musk just has to be stopped. Um, and, 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 you know, I, I've, I've debunked this because they, they keep playing that, that, that statement of his where he says, well, you just look at video games and how much they've advanced over the past 40 years. And that if you believe that they'll continue to advance, even just to the smallest degree, that of course, in the future, there will be simulations similar to what we have, uh, or, you know, or, you know, simulations that could effectively simulate what we're in right now, you know, the universe that we're in. And thus that proves simulation theory, utter nonsense. Uh, and in fact, that's been put to the test. Because you can, you know, if you want to think about that, okay, well then let, let's look at, cause that's doing math, right? So let's do the math and I'll talk about this in my user podcast, but I'll bring it up here quickly. Uh, I'll give you more of the specifics when you hear the user podcast at the end, let's do the math on. All right. So we're basing it upon our knowledge of processing power of graphical processing power. All right. So then unless we are talking about a computer that does not exist, and that we have no idea how it could exist even beyond quantum computers. Unless you had a computer like that. And look, if you want to tell people this is how life is, you kind of have to prove that computer first. But okay, whatever. I mean, really, it, it just sounds like atheists trying to find uh, something to replace God in their life. And how pathetic for atheists. You know, it's like, no, you're an atheist. Fucking stand by that shit. <laughs> I thought you didn't need a creator. <sighs> anyway. Um, so yeah, so let, let's, okay. So let's devise the computer based on our understanding of computing, even the most advanced theories we have around computing. And what would it take to simulate what we know of the universe? There's not enough matter in the universe to create that computer. Do you understand? Like if your basis is that is on, if your theory, if your, your uh, example is graphical power, you don't get it. Like to simulate the universe as we know it. Okay. And you could say, well, we don't really understand parts. Sure. Okay. There's parts of the universe we don't understand, but we do have some understanding of scale. We do have understanding of how certain things work. Okay. We've got, you know, quite a few of the big things figured out. We know that it would take a computer that, you know, it's so large and so powerful that like, there's just not enough matter in the universe to create it. Like, I mean, do you get that, that you'd need a computer bigger than the universe to create the universe and that like that, that, and when you consider the immensity of the, like that, that's just, I mean, just, just try to imagine this computer. Anyway, I, I get into that in, in deeper detail in the user podcasts and you know, you can, if you want to email me questions at sovereigntech.com, we can go into there. So Elon Musk, like that's just the worst example, but he considers it the killer app. He's dead wrong. Um, let's talk about Philip K. Dick. Again, I love Philip K. Dick. I, and I have no desire to speak ill of the dead here. Um, though maybe he doesn't think he was, he's dead. <laughs> uh, Philip K. Dick. So they play this. And it, it's interesting to listen to. And I actually want to go out and like find the original video of this, uh, a, a talk that he gave in 1977 in France. And apparently he had seen star Wars that same day, you know, a new hope. Hmm. Anyway, he's giving this talk and he's talking about simulation theory and he's talking about where he admits to that crowd. And I'll give him credit for the balls, <laughs> you know, to do this. He admits to that crowd that he thinks he has experienced, you know, he has been the man in the high castle. He has experienced alternate universes. That's his claim. Like it happened to him while he was getting his wisdom teeth pulled out. Now, most people know, again, I'm not, I, I, I'm not speaking ill of him. Okay. Most people know that Philip K. Dick was 
neurotic. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could argue psychotic, depending upon how you want to use those terms. Like he was not a mentally well person by most definitions of, you know, the DSM or whatever. And not to say that that I would hold that necessarily against anybody. Okay. There are crazy people out there that I just love. I'm probably one of them, but this is a guy who is not, you know, <laughs> he was not playing, uh, 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 on an even field. Okay. Or should I say a level field? This is a guy who supposedly, and I, I mean, I think there's strong evidence that he did say this. And actually after watching this, seeing this talk from 1977 in this documentary glitch in the matrix, um, I'm more inclined to believe that he really did think this. Uh, so I have, I actually, I, I have all of these books um, scanned because that's what I, you know, it's one of my great pleasures in life is to digitize and preserve uh, well out of print books or books that get sold for ridiculous amounts of money. Uh, one of these books is called the star people by Brad Steger from 1987. Uh, it's actually part of like a trilogy of the Starborn people that, it's this whole notion that some people on earth are actually from like the Pleiades, things like that. I mean, I, I don't need to do a whole breakdown of that here, but Brad Steger, I mean, these books that Brad Steger was putting out there in the late seventies and in the eighties, uh, were wildfire. Uh, actually one of them was called revelation, the divine fire. But anyway, I mean, Brad Steger was, you know, a very, uh, like I was a best-selling author at the time. Uh, and, and, and this whole concept of the star people was, was massive in the eighties. And apparently according to Brad Steger, so that book specifically the star people, by the way, if you want to get your hands on it, it runs about 900 bucks these days to get a paperback copy. It never came out in hardcover. As far as I know, uh, to get a paperback, it's going to cost you about 900 bucks. Me, I put it out on the internet for free, but <laughs> you tell me who's doing good in the world. People making this documentary. Or what? Uh-huh. Yeah. Anyway, so in this book, Brad Steger doesn't name him by name, but eventually I guess it did come out, or my understanding is that it did come out, I don't know what the circumstances were exactly, that the science fiction author who claimed to be a star person in 1987, remember the interview was in 19, or the, the talk in France was in 1977 that Philip K. Dick gave. The person that Brad Steger was talking about in the beginning chapters of the star people. Okay. And I know about this because again, I read the fucking book in that apparently the science fiction author who he's who, who Brad Steger says, you know, that he was a star person or claimed to be a star person was Philip K. Dick. So, you know, okay. So you're using Philip K. Dick to say, well, you see here, this, this is, this guy is brilliant, blah, blah, blah. And here he is saying, yeah, I experienced these alternate realities. Um, you know, everything's a fucking simulation, yada, yada, yada. When somewhere between 1977 and 1987, Philip K. Dick changed his mind and said, and must have said, no, 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 I'm not, you know, I didn't experience like, or we don't live in a simulation, but I'm an alien from another planet. Now, Philip K. Dick's not the only person to make that kind of claim. Gene Roddenberry, actually, also, if you read The Last Conversation, uh, seemed to be very much making that claim. Uh, I don't know. I, I've gone out there. I've tried to find other people who, like, have some kind of review about The Last Conversation, which was this book that was, like, Gene Roddenberry in his last years of his life had a, a woman follow him around and, like, do interviews with him and everything. And he's just laying out all this stuff. I mean, it's a very enlightening read. It's also another one, well out of print. But somebody out there maybe the guy behind this microphone got digitized and made available for free on the internet for everybody to download and to ingest and enjoy and learn something about these people that we herald as heroes. And I do consider both Philip K. Dick and Gene Roddenberry heroes. Don't, you know, don't misunderstand me, but let's be clear that sometimes, woo, you know, their, their brains get on, on a boat to Lake Cuckoo. <laughs> hey, mine does too, but still. So here's my point is that, Philip K. Dick is no authority figure to point at for simulation theory because he clearly thought other things later on in his life. Yet, I mean, we, like we have evidence of that, that he did not believe in a simulation. He actually believed, well, no shit. The explanation for all this is that some of us are just fucking aliens on this earth. 
So outside of actually, no, even with Nick Bostrom, your let's say your three authority figures, Nick Bostrom, uh, Elon Musk, and Philip K. Dick, all three of them can be provably shown to have either changed their mind or be wrong. Or their theory is, uh, you know, again, they're the ones caring about statistics. Their theory is statistically insignificant or statistically implausible. Okay. So simulation theory. Now the people that they talk to about the simulation theory and they go into, what is it? The case of Justin cook. Um, and there was the DC sniper as well. They get, I mean, this, this documentary does take a very dark turn, uh, in like, it's about two hours. And in the last half hour, it takes a very dark turn because they start talking about people who believe this and they talk about the, you know, in a court of law, what's called like, what do they call it? The, uh, the matrix defense, meaning that it's, it's just another, it's, it's another way of pleading insanity saying that the person thinks that nothing is real. And so that's why they went on this killing spree. And so they get into the case of Justin cook, who, which is where the matrix defense came out of, out of that case originally where he killed his mother and his father. Um, you know, and he was a young person. He was, and he was obsessed with the movie, the matrix. I want to talk more about that. Uh, and of course then the DC sniper, they get into that. I mean, you can watch this. Okay. Just be prepared for, you know, for, for <laughs> very little intellectual discourse. I mean, one of the other guys they interview is, so he, he's like an engineer from Harvard or they graduated out of Harvard and he started keeping like all these moments of synchronicity in his life. He, like he started charting them on a, on a spreadsheet in Excel. And, and that's what like led him on this path to the idea that we live in some kind of simulation. Um, I, I, I just don't. I just don't find that as evidence. <laughs> I mean, it were it's for him, you know, and, and, and arguably one, you know, one can make, well, that's all that matters. It's like, if it's, if it's his reality and his truth, then fine, you know, then that's how he's going to go forward. But the part that I was actually disappointed they didn't spend more time on was the Mandela effect. They bring it up, but they don't bother to like bring, I mean, they, you know, for two hours, which really this only needed to be 30 minutes, not even frankly, because they, they wasted so much time with all these weird kind of like personal experiences. Um, it, it very much, it felt like, like, what was that? Was that guy? Was it Les Stroud? No, no, no. That that's survivor, man. Now there's somebody who has an understanding of reality. Um, now it was Lee Strobel, the guy who did a case for Christ and a bunch of other books after that it felt like one of his documentaries, which again was just like all opinion and, and maybe you get into scientist or two. I mean, you know, like the appeal to, to historicity, that can be a logical fallacy, but at the same time, that can be somewhat of its own evidence. And they do try to go for that with Plato, you know, again with Plato's cave, but Plato's cave in and of itself has a lot of different interpretations. But the, I mean, the one thing I think that's abundantly clear with Plato's cave is that in no way was Plato suggesting that, you know, we're not real and that, you know, only the, only one individual is real. And like, he wasn't pointing at simulation theory at all. He was pointing at the idea that people don't see how the world really works, but that, that broad notion does not imply or require going to the extreme of we live in a computer simulation, right? It could just be that you don't understand that Republicans and Democrats are the same thing. That's Plato's cave. And so hearing these people who have, I mean, outside of Bostrom, hearing these people discuss um, why they believe in the simulation theory, like that was really, and when you get into their stories and then especially later on, when you get into like Justin Cook's story, um, I, I weep for the species because it's so abundantly clear how desperate people are to find meaning 
in the facade that is not the universe. The universe is not a facade. In the facade that is society. Okay? In the facade that is the, uh, you know, the supposed social agreements that everybody makes with each other. In the facade of government. But that they they go so far as to just say, no, no, no fuck, fuck, nothing's real. And I mean, look, it's not, and, and I, and this is what makes me sad because it's not hard to go online, to go on the internet and pick your poison of where any website, media outlet, social media site, whatever. And you're just inundated with a million different versions of the quote unquote truth. And so of course you walk away from that asking yourself like Pontius Pilate, what is truth? But instead of really exploring that, you know, the nature of truth, which you can. And when we get to the user podcast episode that I'll play at the end, you know, I'll, I'll get into that. They just, they just jump to what a lot of other people jump to, you know, but instead of, Oh, truth is God or truth is Christ. Instead of doing that, they jump to truth is the big computer in the sky, right? Or, or the computer that we're inside of. And it's just a cop out. It's, it's, it's the brain, frankly, being lazy. It's the person being lazy, mentally lazy, intellectually lazy and not wanting to, because here's, here's why I think a lot of human minds go that direction. Okay. And this, you know, don't misunderstand me. This isn't, I'm not making a blanket statement. I hate this word, but I'll use it. I'm not making a blanket statement against spirituality. Okay. Because there are certainly spiritual, uh, I guess I'll say abstracts, concepts, or even religions that don't fall prey to what I am about to say. But most religions, and apparently now a lot of people online and even atheists do, which is you don't want to accept responsibility for the universe before you. You don't want to accept responsibility for your own life. You want to just offset it to some computer program or to God, or you want to lay it before Christ because his yoke is light, right? You know, I mean, really, if there's anything worth watching in this, certainly hearing Philip K. Dick talk is is well worth anyone's time. Um, But beyond that, the phone interview that they do with Justin Cook, who he must have been calling from prison, um, is that that's also very disturbing, not just because he killed his own parents. Okay. Uh, because he didn't think they were real. And because uh, anyway, it's, it's, it's very disturbing to hear, but it's something worth listening to because I am, I mean, people, yeah, I, I, I talk about this often on Sovereign Tech, that we are not ready for the level of technology that we have, like humanity in general, society, shall we say. Society is not prepared for the level of technology that it has been given access to. But I I think it, you know, that point gets really driven home. I, you've, you know, the first time I started saying that really was back when, uh, if you remember Microsoft's Tay, the, the Twitter bot, if you remember that, what happened with that, what brought that up for me. But This whole idea of simulation theory and the distances that some people go, you know, either to murder or just frankly, I think mentally checking out just really goes to show how absolutely society is not prepared for the level of technology that uh, it's almost forced to use today, right? Like try getting around a city without a smartphone. I get it. But the very clear lack of understanding of how computers work, like how the very notion of a simulation, how that actually works, you know, based upon the premises of their beliefs. It's, I don't want to say like terrifying, but man, boy, that, that term comes to mind. I'll just, it's really disturbing that that's how much these people just don't understand how much they haven't learned or grokked or grasped. And that bothers the fuck out of me. It's no wonder that people think voting works. It's no wonder that they've just replaced a sky daddy with a sky computer or a sky PC. 
or a sky program or a sky AI. It's sad. And ultimately, I, I don't think the movie or I don't think the documentary really, really like makes a point. I don't think that it it doesn't necessarily seem to land either way, but they make at the same time, it makes no attempt to disprove what these people are saying. No attempt whatsoever. Uh, I mean, maybe there's like one point. I mean, I'll give it credit here. So there's actually one point where they bring up uh, Audrey Lord's work. Um, uses of the erotic, the erotic is power, which I think is a, is, is a brilliant pamphlet to, you know, to bring up. Um, and they do point at, which I recognized. Okay. And this is, see, this is, this is why I get annoyed. All right. <laughs> With people that only like the matrix and only want to, especially when they only want to talk about philosophy, when, confined to the first film of the matrix because the Wachowski's philosophy gets far more fleshed out over the next two films. Um, and in the second film, which yes, the first matrix movie is the best. The one I enjoy watching perhaps the most is, uh, reloaded the, the middle one. Okay. It's not like an empire strikes back scenario, but I, I love the middle one. Uh, for, for a lot of reasons, but that, that's a whole other conversation. Maybe that's something I'll have, I don't know, at some point we could do a sovereign at the movies about it. If somebody really wants me to, um, but in that movie, there is the point where in Zion, right. Where Morpheus, you know, he gives this big speech. They're all in this cave and, you know, they start having a, you know, a big, uh, big rave or like uns, uns party and everybody's getting, I mean, freak nasty and whatever. Matrix or uh, Matri- Neo and Trinity are in our, you know, in their own room making love. It's beautiful. It's a very, very well done scene. Uh, music's great. Love it. And when it's all over, you know, Neo is having like a crisis of conscience after the fact. And there's Trinity, you know, the love of his life. They're holding each other. She holds his hand and she says to Neo, do you feel this? That's love. Now that moment and that statement is saying to you, okay, this it's saying that, yes, there is an objective reality. I'm real. You are real. And the reason we know that you and I are real is because we feel this. We feel love between each other, which is, I mean, and love's a very, like, it's like, fuck, right? It's a word that can mean a million things. But love in the sense that you can feel, you know, you can feel what the other person is feeling. I mean, like, that that's a big problem that a lot of proponents of simulation theory or brain in the vat theory get into all the time, is that, well, you know, what one person sees is yellow, the other person might not see is yellow. Yeah, that's entirely possible. Some people are colorblind. But well, you can say in many times, in many ways that, okay, not one person can't really know what another person is feeling. While that's largely true, it's not always true because we, that is the very nature of empathy, which is hard coded in life. It's in rats for fuck's sake. You can feel love together with another person. Speaking of great science fiction writers, Robert A. Heinlein, his, his definition of love has been my favorite uh, pretty much my whole life in that love is when someone else's happiness is inextricably intertwined with your own. Okay. That means your happiness, that love is something that you feel completely together, that you are sharing completely together. And the other sad part of this, and I, and I hate to say it, but <laughs> And even when it goes to Musk, because we know who he's with, I don't know if these guys have ever felt love. And maybe that's why their mind is willing to make this, you know, insane leap to that. Well, none of this is real. And maybe it just comes down to the fact that they've never really felt the love of another human being and felt it inside of their own person. And that's sad too. And that might be the most disturbing part of this. 
And I imagine that that's becoming more common. I said it, you know, closer to the beginning of this recording. The two biggest problems in the world is that there's not enough touch. Remember, right? Neo, Trinity, touching. You feel this? This is love. There's not enough touch, and we don't tell each other how we really feel. And I think humanity is suffering so hard from that. So hard to the point that now a theory that somehow none of this is real is becoming like, I mean, one guy even, he proposes it. He's like, yeah, we, I should, I want to go like in front of the UN and just proposes as the new religion. What the fuck? I thought we were just getting past that religion being, and maybe even the UN and its viability. God damn it. <laughs> no pun intended. So before you say to me, after that little diatribe, before you say to me, Ryan, Matrix Reloaded is just a movie. Uh, no, I have, of course, you know, there's the scientific method. I have what I call the science fiction method. That is, is that again, science fiction is what originally is meant to be an intellectual exercise in the possible. Okay. And that intellectual exercise is in, you know, is really scientific in itself because it's, it's dealing in what science deals in predictive predictions, results, predictive results. This whole theory for a lot of these people is coming out of the concepts that they saw the Wachowskis put on display in the matrix. Okay. And I am saying there is a fuller expression of what those philosophies are and you get them and look, we know, like, in fact, because the movies are so divisive, I think it's pretty clear that the Wachowskis had carte blanche to do whatever they wanted to in the sequels. Okay. So they didn't have to please anybody because the matrix was such a massive hit, but we get a fuller expression of their philosophies. And I don't even think it's interpretation. It is abundantly clear that the Wachowskis are saying that there is an objective reality and that when you read what their entire work is based off of simulation, simulacra, simulation, simulacra is not that paper is not suggesting that we live in a computer. That paper is suggesting that like everything around us is memes and, and that society's bullshit. That's what that paper says. I've actually wanted to do an audiobook of that for quite some time. It's just a pain in the ass to read all the French names in it. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised because the Wachowskis would be the kind that would know like the works of Audre Lorde, where they may have been directly expressing, uh, you know, her pamphlet uses of the erotic. I, I, I could totally believe that in suggesting that the erotic and love, this is what proves reality. This is what's real. Now you got to get into a much bigger conversation around that, but certainly we could point to geniuses that have called that as well. Buckminster Fuller said that love was, I mean, he was basically claiming it was a force just like gravity as in maybe even had particles, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was going that far again. That's a, that's a whole other conversation to get into. Um, but yeah, the matrix is not saying what all of these, you know, right. I don't want to say morons again, nincompoops are claiming, and that includes Elon Musk. I, I guess I hope I hate saying that. Um, but my best scenario <laughs> out of this movie existing Maybe, and I hope the matrix four is a good movie is that it does turn out to be good marketing for the movie and people go and see it. Um, and that maybe because it is such a piss poor documentary, uh, that people laugh it off. Uh, I mean that like, that's just what I'd like to occur, um, out of this, but I'm also very concerned that people will find it to be like engaging and interesting and possible. And, you know, they're not willing to do some internal critical thinking. If you're the only thing that's real, well, let's do some critical thinking and figure that out. Right. Uh, but they don't. <laughs> so with all that said, um, watch this. If you like, I thought it was horrible. Like everything about it, I, again, the production, like the effects and all that and the sound, I mean, like all that's top notch, but like it's presentation as a documentary itself. It fails on that level. Um, just about everybody they bring out to bear fails. Um, Philip K. Dick was not, again, not an authority to appeal to when you aren't actually familiar with all of Philip K. Dick's works. Okay. 
Um, this, this was a mess. And to clean up that mess, I am now going to go to, uh, an episode of the user podcast. Again, it's called the light of knowledge. Uh, you, and it will discuss, I discuss simulation theory on it. I just, or in it, I discuss the nature of truth and go over all that 15 minutes. It's all I ask of you. You don't have to watch two hours of bullshit. Okay. You can just, you can just listen. You don't even have to watch something. You can just listen, go outside and enjoy and feel the grass, feel the reality, feel the objective mosquito biting your ass. And listen to, uh, you know, have a good time listening to something that I think was rather well produced if I don't say so myself. So anyway, that's it. I will, I will leave you here with that and let it ride out. And I will see all of you very soon on the other side. Woo. And don't worry. The other side's like not the other side of the simulation. No. All right. But here you go. Go, go listen to me. Power on. Greetings, sapient being. Welcome aboard the Starship Alexandria. Prepare for the user podcast. Greetings, everyone. Welcome back aboard the Alexandria. I know many of you were taking holiday leave from the Starship today, so it's good that all of you could join me again. We're presently on our way to the moon to discuss... Okay, okay, I know. The Alexandria isn't a real Starship. It's a Starship of the imagination. And as powerful as the human imagination is, it seems like we can imagine just about anything. Imagination alone doesn't make something real. But what is real? How do you know something is true from false? For that matter, what is knowledge? On this episode of the User Podcast, we're going to explore just that, the nature of reality and the reality of knowledge. Almost 2,500 years ago, in 369 BCE, the infamous Greek philosopher Plato wrote one of his many dialogues, this one concerning itself with the very nature of knowledge. Named after the Greek mathematician and geometer Theotetus of Athens, who lived from 417 to 369 BCE, the dialogue would reflect a conversation between Socrates and Theotetus himself. In the dialogue, Theotetus would end up defining knowledge as true belief with an account. In other words, you know something when you believe it, it's actually true, and you have good reason to think it's true. In Western philosophy, at some point we'll have to try and figure out what that actually is, but that's for another time, that's essentially the definition of knowledge that's accepted today. Knowledge is justified true belief. It's agreed that all three are necessary. You can't know something without believing it. A belief can't count as knowledge unless it's justified. It can't just be a lucky guess. And you can't know something if it's false. You can know that something is false but you can't know something that is false. But let's notice something within that definition. There is no mention of certainty. And without certainty, do you really know that you know something? Another of the most famous texts in philosophy, and by many philosophers' measure, perhaps the most important, written in 1641, is the French philosopher and mathematician René Descartes' Meditations on First Philosophy. A text that still stands tall in philosophy departments at many a university, in it Descartes, himself a pivotal figure in the Enlightenment and the Scientific Revolution, is looking for a solid ground on which to base all knowledge. To that end, he is looking for a belief that cannot be doubted, and thus takes seriously even the most ridiculous ways that his foundational beliefs could be false. It may seem obvious, Descartes said, that 
I am here sitting by the fire wearing a winter dressing gown, but he has dreamed such things before and been just as convinced. He considers his condition, shakes his head, and admits that it certainly feels like he's awake, but then again, he has felt the same surety while dreaming. And I want to stop here for a second to discuss this. The nature of dreams and sleep will be a subject for a future user podcast, but it should bring us pause when we consider that, outside of lucid dreaming, when we dream, regardless of the absurdity of what is happening around us in that dream, we accept the events in the dream as perfectly normal, or at least perfectly possible. In your dream, you could be flying through the sky, and you can even feel your stomach drop if you descend quickly enough in flight. But you never question that you are able to fly. You accept it as if it were as natural as the ability to breathe. What this says about our dreams or our mind's relationship with reality is a bit of a puzzle, but a puzzle that as we learn more about consciousness in the future may have surprising answers. But back to Descartes, who, as we just discussed how visceral our dreams can be, is now realizing that he could be dreaming, and there is no way to prove to himself he's not. This doesn't make Descartes doubt the existence of the world, however. After all, he surmises, the ideas in his dreams come from his experience during waking life. So he can't always have been dreaming. But then Descartes considers an alternate possibility for the source of those ideas. What if some malicious, powerful, cunning demon has done all he can to deceive me? What if the sky, the air, the earth, colors, shapes, sounds, and all external things are merely dreams that the demon has contrived as traps for my judgment. If true, not even the world exists, and because a lifetime of experiences fed to Descartes by such a demon would be indistinguishable from a lifetime of experiences of the real world, to his mind there is no way to prove that this isn't true. Indeed, no matter what test Descartes performed to see if this was true, the demon could simply fool him into thinking he had passed the test when he actually hadn't. Later philosophers would call this the brain in a vat problem. If you were just a brain in a vat floating in a pot of goo of some kind, being fed sensations by a computer to make you experience a fake world, your entire life would consist of the same kind of experiences that it has consisted of. There is no way to prove this isn't happening. Any test you performed could simply be sabotaged by the VAT system itself. Of course, the flip side to this problem is that you can't know for sure that you aren't being fooled by a demon or the computer feeding your brain in a VAT either. Thus, you can't know the world is real. And if you can't know something as basic as that, something that seems to undergird our entire belief system, it seems you can't know anything at all. Knowledge is impossible. But is this argument sound, and should we care about knowledge in the first place? Descartes worried that knowledge was impossible because it was impossible for any belief to be justified. You couldn't be justified in believing the world was real because you couldn't be certain that you weren't being fooled. Let's take the brain in the vat theory a step further to something that has become rather popular in recent years, the simulation hypothesis. Though really a play off of age-old concepts and problems, the simulation hypothesis was popularized by Nick Bostrom in 2003 with his paper titled, Are You Living in a Computer Simulation? In it, Bostrom states, Many works of science fiction, as well as some forecasts by serious technologists and futurologists, predict that enormous amounts of computing power will be available in the future. Let us suppose for a moment that these predictions are correct. One thing that later generations might do with their super powerful computers is run detailed simulations of their forebears, or of people like their forebears. Because their computers would be so powerful, they could run a great many such simulations. Suppose that these simulated people are conscious, as they would be if the simulations were sufficiently fine-grained and if a certain quite widely accepted position in the philosophy of mind is correct. Then it would be the case that the vast majority of minds like ours do not belong to the original race, but rather to people simulated by the advanced descendants of an original race. It is then possible to argue that, if this were the case, we would be rational to think that we are likely among the simulated minds rather than among the original biological ones. Therefore, if we don't think that we are currently living in a computer simulation, we are not entitled to believe that we will have descendants who will run lots of such simulations of their forebears. Called an ancestor simulation, basically the simulation hypothesis is the idea that we are living inside of a computer simulation, perhaps created by post-humanoids of some kind or some future version of humanity. 
The computer simulation is not unlike the popular video game franchise The Sims, where you control characters within the game, but instead of trying to save the princess or stop zombies from taking over Raccoon City, you're merely playing the game of life, getting a job, buying a car, starting a family, gardening, etc. But in the simulation hypothesis, we, literally you and I, are actually the video game characters, and proponents of the hypothesis claim that like Descartes' dream state or the brain in the vat, there is no way that we can disprove that we are living in a computer simulation. That was until 2017 when two teams of theoretical physicists, one from the University of Oxford and the other from the Hebrew University in Israel, published their findings in the prestigious journal Science Advances, showing conclusions of research they had done which were actually a kind of a side effect generated by a separate study concerning quantum systems and computational algorithms. What the teams found was that, mathematically, with any kind of computer we could conceive, digital or quantum, there aren't enough atoms in the entirety of the universe to allow for the creation of a computer that could simulate the universe at the quantum level, the very basis of our reality. It's just not possible. In fact, the whole concept of the simulation hypothesis requires you to accept a lot of givens, but one in particular, that computational power will continue to improve to the point that graphics, much like in your favorite video game, will get to the point that the digital representations will become indistinguishable from reality. But as has been proven through scientific research, there are limits to computational power, and there is no evidence or guarantee that computer graphics will become truly lifelike, as hard as Hollywood movie studios and hologram-laden concert venues may try. But admittedly, that's based on our present understanding of computers. What if there was some entirely different type of computer, some supercomputer, that we supposedly lowly simulations couldn't possibly conceive of that is running this ancestor simulation that the likes of Elon Musk, Nick Bostrom, and others claim we're living in? Well, let's talk a little more about what knowledge is to respond to that question. According to most philosophers, and it seems the general public, a proposition, such as a theory or hypothesis, is true if it simply corresponds to the way the world is. It's called the correspondence theory of truth. And if a proposition does correspond to reality, then it's true, regardless of whether you are aware of that correspondence or not. So if knowledge, justified true belief as we defined it, is impossible, it's not because it's impossible for a belief to be true. In fact, notice that in the correspondence theory, things could even be true with our brains and vats or inside of the ancestor simulation. Knowledge in itself is intrinsically valuable, but that's not the only value of knowledge. Understanding the way the world works also helps you navigate and manipulate it. So, you should also value your ability to attain knowledge and resist efforts to rob you of that ability. In fact, a lack of knowledge can often be harmful, even lethal to others, making ignorance an ethically objectionable thing. Knowledge is valuable. Its pursuit is worthwhile. But does the fact that we can't be certain that we aren't in some ancestor simulation or a brain in the vat mean that having knowledge is impossible? In short, no. The problem is that there are essentially two hypotheses that are consistent with the evidence of your life experience. Either you are actually awake and not in a simulation and experiencing a physical world, or you are being fooled in some grandiose way, such as by the supercomputer or a demon, into thinking the world is real when it's not. And there is really no test that you can perform to prove which hypothesis is true, especially when it comes to the idea of living in a dream. But in science, two explanations can account for the same data, so you have to delineate between them by appealing to other scientific criteria. Using the concept of Occam's razor, we can ask certain questions to help us delineate. For example, which hypothesis is simpler? That is, which hypothesis makes the fewest assumptions? Which hypothesis has wider scope? That is, which hypothesis explains the most without raising unanswerable questions? Also, which one better aligns with what is already well established? These things are, by definition, what a good scientific explanation should do. So whichever explanation aligns with the most of these criteria is the best explanation. We can do the same kind of thing with Descartes' problem. What is the better explanation for your experiences? That you are experiencing the world right now, or that you are being fed sensations by a supercomputer like in the brain in the vat problem or the simulation hypothesis? The supercomputer explanation isn't simple. It assumes the existence of the world and the existence of a giant, powerful computer in that world, as to where the real-world explanation doesn't require the latter. And the supercomputer explanation also has very little scope. It raises all kinds of unanswerable questions about how the computer works, who built it and why, and how it causes our experiences. 
but we actually have a pretty good idea of how the universe, if real, came into existence, or perhaps has always existed, and how it would cause your life experiences. So even though we can't prove which hypothesis is true, though the study we described earlier is pretty damning against the simulation hypothesis, we can show which one is better, which one is most likely, and thus which one is more rational to accept and act upon. And thus, you can have what equates to knowledge. Can you be certain? No. Because even if you can be certain of your own existence, as Descartes argued, I think, therefore I am, you can't, as Descartes tried to do, build up certainty about the entire world from there. But because knowledge doesn't require certainty, you don't have to. Knowledge is simply justified true belief. You are justified in believing that which is most likely, in demons fooling us in our dreams, or our brains and vats, or supercomputer-run ancestor simulations are not the most likely. We are very awake and very physical beings. The universe objectively exists outside of us, and we are very, very real. I'll see you next time on the User Podcast. User podcast was made possible by the Knight Foundation, Interplanetary Expeditions, the Earth Cargo Service, Sovereign Tech First University, and with contributions from users like you. Thank you.